Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Thank you for joining us as we continue our expository study of the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Today, Pastor Alex Cataroja examines chapter 1, verse 6, and the incredible truth that Christ made us a kingdom and priests. Using Scripture alone, we'll unpack this to see the rich blessings that are contained in this promise. Here is Pastor Alex. We're going to cover one verse today, but as you'll see, we're going to talk a lot more than what's in the one verse, but we're going to see what is leading into the comment uh, or the statement that Jesus made us to be a kingdom and priests. Let me ask you guys a question just really quick before we get into the scripture. So when the scripture calls us kingdom and priests, do you know what the relevance or the significance of that is? And do you know where that is rooted in the Old Testament? Well, that's going to be part of what we're going to hopefully achieve in our study today, is when the scripture says that Jesus made us to be a kingdom and a priest, that there is more behind that statement, and it all centers around the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of course, and his Father's bidding. Um, Since we're only in verse 6, or we're going to tackle verse 6, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 and go from there. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I'd like to start off our study, I want you guys to get used to this. I want to insert the persons of the Trinity as we are opening up the text, because we want to make sure that credit is given to where credit is due, at least with respect to the different workings of each person of the Trinity. So in Revelation 1-4, we've covered this, and let me reread that to you. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God the Father who is, and God the Father who was, and God the Father who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before God the Father's throne. We've covered that and opened that up in our past study. Now what I'd like to do is In our remaining verses, uh, verses 5 and 6, I'd like for us to add the persons of the Trinity. So I helped us in verse 4, and I'd like for us to walk through the rest of verses 5 and 6. And then what I'd like to do is I want to see who's him, who's his. We're going to look at Scripture, we're going to plug it in, and we're going to see what the Scripture tells us. Now don't flip the page just yet. 
because um, I, I, I want us to answer these four questions, and I want you to start kind of engaging with me a little bit here. Who loves us and released us from our sins? Which person of the Trinity? Just first thing comes out of your head. Jesus. That, that was my first guess. Just that was my first. Okay? We'll see if that's true. Whose blood is being referred to when it says, by his blood? Christ. Who made us to be a kingdom and priests? Father. Holy Ghost. Okay? And to whom be the glory and the dominion forever and ever? You have to pick one. The Father? That's what I thought too. Okay? Okay. Remember, we're going to stick by these principles. We must use Scripture with Scripture. So let's use Scripture to tell us which person of the Trinity is being spoken of in those four questions. You ready? So who loved us and released us from our sins? Why do we go to probably and arguably the most popular passage in the New Testament, John 3, 16. And I'll read 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now this one, let's insert the persons of the Trinity. It's pretty self-explanatory. Let me read it again. For God the Father so loved the world that God the Father gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in God the Son shall not perish but have eternal life. For God the Father did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through God the Son. Isn't that, don't you wish he just wrote it that way? But... There's, you know, it keeps God mysterious, but really we can see which person of the Trinity did what and whose, who, whose, whose action is being spoken of, whose will, in what capacity. So who so loved the world in John three sixteen seventeen? God the Father. How does the Father demonstrate that? By sending God the Son. So God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And what else does scripture say about this? And I want to go to now a famous Romans 8 passage that many of us are familiar with, Romans 8. And I want to read verses 31 through 39. Paul writes there, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or the Russia-Ukraine conflict? Just threw that in there. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We're going to answer who is him who loved us. For I am convinced 
that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So my question to us is, who loved us? Who is Paul speaking of in verse 37 when it says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Who, which person of the Trinity? Well, let's follow. Well, let's insert the persons of the Trinity and reread it, and you will see it'll become more clear. So let me read it now, inserting the persons of the Trinity. And how do I know that this is the person of the Trinity? I'm letting the Scripture tell us. So when it's talking about Christ Jesus and it's speaking about someone who's he or him, we know it's not Christ Jesus if it is distinct from each other. So I'm letting the scripture dictate which persons of the Trinity. Now let me reread it to us. You ready? The same passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God the Father is for us, who is against us? God the Father who did not spare His own Son, but delivered God the Son for us all, how will not God the Father not also with God the Son freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God the Father's elect? Did you know that we are elect of God the Father, not God the Son? If you want to just be technical, who chose you? God the Father. And what did the Son do? Saved and died for those the Father has given Him. So let me read it again. Who will bring a charge against God the Father's elect? God the Father is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yet, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God the Father, who God the Son also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. We're still trying to figure out who's Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God who? Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord who loved us and whose love can we not be separated from? And verse 39 helps us which is in Christ Jesus our Lord is distinct from the love of God. What I mean is this. It's the Father again. Let me reread this to us. This is how we know it's the Father because the distinction in verse 39, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, is distinct from the love of of God. Let me read it again. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through God the Father who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God the Father, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now back to our first question. Who loves us and released us from our sins? God the Father. He loved us. And he released us from our sins. How did he do that? The second question. Who released us from our sins by his blood? How did the Father love us and release us from our sins? And is, this is the easy one. It is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read just one passage in Hebrews to bring that point home. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the Father, I didn't mean to do that for us, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, the Father. Jesus' blood, you want to be technical? The Father's blood didn't save you. Even though God the Father loved us, elected us, and freed us, it was the Son's blood that released us from the penalty of our sin. Now to our third question. Who made us to be a kingdom and priests? And thankfully, this is answered in our key passage let me reread it again. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God the Father who is and God the Father who was and God the Father who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before God the Father's throne and from Jesus Christ, God the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to God the Father who loves us and released us from our sins by God the Son's blood and he made us to be priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 6, when it says to his God and Father, informs us that the first part of verse 6 is God the Son, again distinct from the other person of the Trinity. So let's input Jesus there. And God the Son made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So to whom be the glory in the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. You want a second? You kind of want to maybe rethink your guess earlier? You still think it's the Father? I thought it was the Father too. Let's see if it's true. This one's pretty straightforward. We're at, this is our fourth question. To whom be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. To whom? To which person of the Trinity? You can't cheat and just say to God. Which person of the Trinity be the glory and the dominion forever and ever? And let me give you a tip. And thankfully, we have resources now. Just type and find out when is dominion and glory used together. That'll get you closer to the answer. And lo and behold, our go-to passage, which we will not only talk about here, we'll talk about it as we even go on in this study, Daniel 7. Let me reread that. And this was the vision of Daniel into heaven's court. 
Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, and that's the son of God, was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and we've learned that the ancient of days is God the Father and was presented before him, the ancient of days or God the Father. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who's him and his in Daniel 7.14? Christ, Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Let's put that in now. And to God the Son was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve God the Son. God the Son's dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And God the Son's kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So to whom be the glory and the dominion forever and ever? It's not God the Father. It's God the Son. You know, I could have just went straight to Peter, but I wanted to go to the Old Testament and tie it in. But this is exactly what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4. And I'll read 10 and 11. This gets right to the answer. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom Jesus Christ belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And for one last time, at least here, Let's insert, let's insert the persons of the Trinity in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. The Holy Spirit gets some love in this one, okay? You know, we've been talking about Father, Son quite a bit. The Holy Spirit gets some love here. Let me reread it, inserting the persons of the Trinity. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God the Father, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God the Son, the Word of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength by which God the Holy Spirit supplies, so that in all things God the Father may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom God the Son belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So to whom be the glory and dominion forever and ever? I thought it was God the Father. Peter tells us succinctly. Daniel tells us it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, let's look at verses 4 and 6. With all persons of the Trinity in, in, inserted, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from God the Father, who is, and God the Father, who was, and God the Father, who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before God the Father's throne. 
and from Jesus Christ, God the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To God the Father who loves us and released us from our sins by God the Son's blood. And God the Son has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To God the Son be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Each person of the Trinity has its own work. And praise is given when praise is due. When it comes to the phrase, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, the praise is due to God the Son. And we'll see why. We'll see why. Are you ready for verse 6 now? And he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he who made us to be, we can confidently say that it is speaking of Jesus. So verse 6 tells us that Jesus is the one who made believers to be a kingdom and priests. And we're going to look at what's behind that. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Son made you a kingdom and made you to be a priest. What is that all about? Well, we're going to find its root and origin, obviously, in the Old Testament prophecy. So we'll look at kingdom and we'll look at priests. And just a little bit about kingdom. We don't have to get too much into this. It's pretty self-explanatory. It's basilia. And when you say kingdom, it means you have sovereignty or power over something. So the United States of America is a kingdom. And its authority is sovereign in the United States in whatever is considered or claimed to be the United States and so forth. So that's pretty straightforward. But we learn from Zechariah 6, and I'm going to go to Zechariah 6 at least a couple of times, that two offices Messiah will occupy, and that means that Messiah will seat, Kaitso is king and priest. So in order for Messiah to preside as king, you will need a kingdom. And in order for Messiah to preside as priest, he will need a priesthood. And in order to accomplish this, he will also not only need a kingdom and a priesthood, but Messiah will need subjects to rule as their king and priest. And in order for that to happen, Jesus needs to fulfill the messianic prophecies concerning him and his kingdom. And one of those messianic prophecies is in Balaam's oracles or Balaam's prophecy. And I want to read a Numbers 24, verse 7. And what I'm going to do for us is I'm going to go ahead and input the subject here. But here's the prophecy given by Balaam. Water will flow from his buckets. It's Israel's Messiah's is the subject here. So water will flow from Israel's Messiah's buckets. And Israel's Messiah's seed will be by many waters. And his, Israel's king, shall be higher than Agag, the Amalekite king. And his, Israel's Messiah, Messiah's kingdom, shall be exalted. And I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but in Numbers, and this is in the law, 
This is at the time of Moses. Agag was, if not centuries, millennia later. I don't have the timeline in front of me. But the law was given in Moses. The first Amalekite king, Agag, didn't rise to power until the time of Saul. And yet, Agag is called by name here. But here's, here's a little clue. Here's a little clue on when it comes to end times prophecy with this oracle. This oracle here, Numbers 24, verse 7, it could be a clue of a showdown between Antichrist's final kingdom, who may be an Amalekite king. And, and, and if you were to follow um, the origin of the Amalekites, you know who they're ultimately tied to? Esau. So this prophecy could be a clue of the showdown between an Amalekite king, or who at least came from that line, from the line of Esau, and between, uh, versus Messiah's kingdom, or Israel's true king. Here's something, we're all familiar with this phrase. Remember when God said, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. That too can be prophetic in that Jacob is speaking of Israel, and Israel's king and Messiah. And Esau, who was an Amalekite, who could be the Antichrist, I hated. Interesting stuff. Here's a side note. Here's what's pretty amazing about God. Did you know that He uses people's wills? He uses His people, let's say the people of Israel, He uses their obedience and their disobedience in his prophecies. Here's, kind of, and, uh, here's where I'm going with that. If you follow the story of Israel, and we're talking about at the time of kings and judges, shortly after that, God was their king, but he wasn't seen. But God would send them judges. The people of Israel wanted to have a king over them just like the other nations. And God gave them over to their desire and they ended up handpicking Saul. And God said that they rejected him ultimately. He goes, I, you know, he's their king, but they wanted to be just like the other nations. God gave them, said, okay, you can have your king. And they picked Saul. And after Saul sinned, he did burnt and peace offerings in the place of Samuel the prophet. God took the kingdom away from Saul and he gave it to David. And that's in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. Samuel was addressing Saul, but now you're, he's speaking to Saul, Saul's kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here's, I want to ask you guys a question. I'm going to try to keep you guys engaged here. Who is being spoken of? When it says, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Who is the man after his own heart? What's the answer? David. Does it stop there? The immediate context is David. But did you know 
This was a prophecy of Messiah, who is David, a son of David. You know, the man after God's own heart ultimately was a prophecy of God the Son, who's after his father's heart. Don't we see that? During the Lord's earthly ministry, my will or my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He was a man after his father's heart. So it's what's interesting, when you follow the story of Israel, God is using their disobedience and he's still going to prophesy and give them a kingdom, but ultimately it is not who they chose because Saul sinned. It's going to be who God chose. He chose David at that time, but ultimately the, the kingdom that will endure forever will be a son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's more than meets the eye when you see. For me, I won't look at that verse the same again. A man after God's own heart. Oh, it's David. Yeah. In context, but it's prophetic about the son of David, the Messiah. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. Okay. Here's my case in point. So through Israel's sin and disobedience, God reaffirmed the messianic kingdom. He promised it before they asked for a king, by the way, Numbers 24, and he reaffirmed it through the Davidic covenant, and he took into consideration their sin and disobedience. And we were familiar with this when the Davidic covenant was confirmed, and I'll just read 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, and Nathan was proclaiming to David on God's behalf, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, a man after my own heart, I'm just throwing that in there, who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He, Messiah, shall build a house for my name. It's also Solomon in the immediate context, but... Messiah ultimately will build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his Messiah's kingdom forever. And I didn't write this down because I don't want to get too sidetracked, but we're the house. We're the temple of which God dwells. And that was a mystery that is in Paul's epistles and in the, the New Testament. So Messiah is building a house. It would include us believers living in us, but just know that when he establishes his kingdom on earth, he will also build an actual temple. And we'll see when we get to the book of Revelation, there's even specs about the final, final, you know, new heavens and a new earth and the new Jerusalem that's being measured out with a measuring rod. But that's Again, way, way future in, the, in our studies. Um, but the case in point here, God used Israel's disobedience to still bring about the promised kingdom of Messiah. And David reaffirms um, Messiah's kingdom in his Psalms. And we'll look at Psalm 22, verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. And as we've learned, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is referring to the Father. And in this verse, He rules is referring to God the Son. And I do want to make a note here. For the kingdom is the Lord's. For the kingdom is God the Father's. So, I want to get technical here. All power and all authority... The, the, the kingdom of, let's just say, 
the world or nations. Ultimately, that kingdom is God the Father's. He is at the top. He is the main authority. He will always be the main authority. Even though he's delegated authority to his son, he never relinquishes his authority as father of all creation. But the authority and the kingdom belongs to the father, and the father says, I'm going to give that authority and that kingdom to God the Son. Accept the father's authority. And the prophecy here is that Yahweh's Messiah will be given the Father's kingdom and rule over the nations. And I don't want to spoil it a little bit here. If you ever heard about the seven seals, what was written in it? It's the kingdom. It's the promised kingdom. Just telling you up front. And we're, we're seeing this through the Old Testament prophecies. And what will Messiah's kingdom consist of? And we'll go to Daniel 7 one more time. The Father's kingdom... It belongs to him. He gave it to the son. And what will that kingdom consist of? Daniel 7 tells us. We'll look at verse 14 again. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Here's what it's going to consist of. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him as his subjects. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Messiah's kingdom that belongs to the Father, that the Father gave to the Son, is going to consist of peoples, nations, and tongues or languages. And who is that group? Another way to summarize it succinctly, the saints, the saints. Daniel 7.18, a few verses later, and this is after the fourth beast kingdom. But the saints of all peoples, nations, and tongues of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom of God the Father that was given to God the Son for all ages to come. And then also, let's look a few verses later, and this is the vision of the little horn. Daniel sees there, I kept looking, and that horn, that little horn, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom, which was foretold, of course, in the Old Testament. So let's go back to verse 6. When it says, And Jesus made us to be a kingdom priest to His God and Father, it is speaking of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecies concerning His kingdom that, was, that, is, that belongs to His Father and it was determined by His Father to give to the Son which will be given to the saints from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we're going to see those very descriptive words in John's vision at the great supper of the Lamb. We'll see what that is all about. You ready to look at priests? We're, we're getting ready to hopefully wrap up here fairly shortly. And I don't want to spend too much time on priests, but priest is herus, which means um, you know, when someone's a priest, you know, for those of us who've probably had a Catholic background, you know, they have priests. Um, there might be some other religions as priests, but at least Catholic is a very popular one. But priest, by definition, means someone who is set apart to serve God in sacred service. 
And remember, the second office that Messiah will occupy, seat or kaitso, is priest. And that's, again, in Zechariah 6. I'll just read verse 13. Yes, it is he, speaking of Messiah, who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he, Messiah, will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between two offices. And here's something that I just want to call out for us. So God the Father... You can say, created two offices with authority as king and as priest. And these offices, which is given to the anointed one, the Messiah, is connected to the throne. So the king and priest offices of Messiah are tied to his ruling kingdom and him ruling on a throne. So Messiah's role as priest, this is what Jesus the Son, God the Son. This is his role as in that priesthood, that high priesthood. It is to be set apart to serve God the Father in sacred service. And we know that Jesus fulfilled that office. He's sitting in the high priesthood, that office of Messiah, determined and established by his Father. And he fulfilled that in his exaltation and his ascension. And when Jesus returns... He's going to make us who are subjected to Him, it says, as priests to His Father. So, here's, here's a truth. Okay, God the Father established two offices for Messiah, king and priest. One of the reasons why the Father established the office of priest is so that Jesus can fulfill that office in serving His Father in sacred service and Jesus fulfilled that office as priest to obviously intercede for us. So just know this, Jesus is our great high priest because in return, He's going to make us priests to serve His God and Father just as God the Son is set apart as priest to serve God the Father. So Jesus is our priest and set apart for service so that He can make us priests so that we can be set apart for service in His kingdom to His Father. See, there's more behind the ministry of the priesthood of Christ. So now let's, let's wrap this all up. Let's close this. In the Old Testament, the God the Father chose His anointed one. Cho- you know, anointed one, the chosen one, Messiah. And this anointed one will occupy the office of king and priest, and the Father established the Messianic kingdom in the Old Testament through prophecy. We saw that in at least just one verse. It's sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament. But the Father established and foretold of the Messianic kingdom in the Old Testament through prophecies, and it was reaffirmed in the Davidic covenant, and it was in and through despite Israel's disobedience. God the Father took that into consideration and still carried out His will and plan. And because the Father established both of Messiah's offices as king and priest, okay, so the Father said, all right, son, I have established this office of king and priest. I have exalted you to that office and have given you the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus or the name, and it's really the anoma of Lord, every knee shall bow whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth.
So Jesus came to fulfill the offices established by his Father, and he accomplished part of that in his first coming, and he's going to bring it to completion in his second coming. And as such, Jesus is king of his Father's kingdom. Let me say that again. Remember, the kingdom belongs to God the Father. And God the Father made Jesus the king of the Father's kingdom, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is sitting kaitso in that office as king of his Father's kingdom and priest of his Father's high priesthood. And by the way, I gutted this out. I was going to get into Melchizedek and talk about you know, the order of Melchizedek and the writer of Hebrews. I'm like, you know what, I'm, I don't want to go too far. And maybe another time I'll, I'll probably touch on that. And part of the Father's will is for Jesus to have subjects rule over as king and to intercede as their priest. And do you know that Jesus, in return of his Father's love, so, the, so here, here's what Jesus is saying, okay. Wow, Father, it's your kingdom. You're giving it to me. And I'm going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you're going to give me the name that is above every name. You're going to give me the title of Lord. He's like, Lord, Father, in return, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to die for those that you've given me. And in return, I'm going to make them a kingdom and priests to serve you as God the Father. This is behind the phrase, and He made us to be kingdom and priests. Jesus was given the kingdom, and he's gonna, he will come. He will take the kingdom promised. He will, he will be King of kings and Lord of lords of all the nations of the world. He will come as promised and planned by his Father, and he will fulfill and continue to fulfill. He fulfilled, and he'll continue to fulfill his high priesthood and will continue to intercede on our behalf before his Father until he comes to take us to be with himself. So even though you're not with Jesus right now, even though I'm not with Jesus, he's interceding for us as our high priest. And he will intercede for us until he receives us to himself. Then he no longer needs to intercede for us because we're going to be with him. Church, family, this is why Jesus our Messiah is the one worthy of the glory and the dominion forever and ever. We agree with the scripture and we're going to sing along with the heavenly host and the redeemed at that appointed time. Like Jesus, we as a kingdom and priest will too pray for God the Father's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. An incredible encouragement and one that will hopefully help us keep focused on the rich blessings that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. His submission to the Father is a perfect example of how we ought to live our lives in submission to Him. And in doing so, we honor and glorify Him as King of kings and Lord of lords. 
We thank you so much for listening today and do hope that you were blessed by this message. Be sure to mark us as a favorite on Sermon Audio or subscribe to Truth Matters Church on your favorite podcasting platform. And be sure to check out our completely free 24-hour stream of biblical teaching, scripture reading, and sermons from great preachers of the past. Visit truthmattersradio.com. That's truthmattersradio.com. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.